This is Pop Fiction Women. I'm Corinne. I'm Kate. And we're complicated. Blunt. Total boss. But sometimes a mess. Opinionated. But never boring. And in this podcast, we're discussing the complicated women of the best books, TV, and movies. Along with the complicated women behind the scenes. Warning, lots of spoilers ahead. So come back when you're done. Hurry up, it's starting. So today we are talking about The Devil Wears Prada. Specifically, we're doing the movie. Because we really wanted to talk about this movie as a cultural phenomenon. It's an iconic film that has lasted and been a staple of everyone's favorites. This is a really rewatchable movie. Yes. We are both book lovers, but for this one, it really felt more appropriate to choose the movie than it did the book. Definitely. Also, unlike many of our other choices, we're going to start talking about the movie itself as opposed to diving right into our complicated women, which we will definitely get to. And there's plenty to talk about there. But the movie is almost, it's one of those things that's bigger than its parts. Yeah. You ask somebody what they love about this movie and you're going to get a different answer from a lot of different people because some say oh it's a love letter to New York and they love the you know the famous buildings and the streets and the outside shots other people love that it's about fashion Mm -hmm. and and the outfits and all of that and then other people like the conflict at work so there's so much to to love about this movie and it's it's not like one thing you can really hone in on right right Unless it's Meryl Streep. I feel like that's that's some people's number one reason they love this movie. There's no denying Meryl's important role in this, in making this movie as iconic as it is. But her alone, it wouldn't be enough. So there's there's the other pieces too. So what do we want to talk about first? I wanted to go back a little to how this movie got made. Okay. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah. So it got released in 2006, but back it up to 2003. Right. When the book came out. Well, it's actually interesting. So studio executives bid on the movie rights before the book had even hit the shelves in 2003. They had seen the first hundred pages of a manuscript Mm -hmm. along with an outline. Right. And... In this instance, they said there was a former studio exec uh, who said that they bought it solely on the strength of the title character. Right. And she's quoted as saying, I thought Miranda Priestly was one of the greatest villains ever. Yes. I remember we aggressively went in and scooped it up. So they started to adapt the project before the book was even completed. But Mm -hmm. once it became a bestseller, they went back and tried to integrate details of Lauren Weisberger's plot. Yeah, I did read that, that they were going to almost go in a different direction with it. And that when the book was a huge, because there's no doubt the book was a huge hit. It was on the bestseller list for 26 weeks as a hardcover. That's insane. Yeah, that That is crazy. That doesn't even happen anymore. The book uh, is, as we know, a Romana Clef. I can never say Mm -hmm. that. Yes. Revenge fantasy, because as we all know, Weisberger briefly worked for Anna Wintour at at Vogue. And it was really about Andy getting even with Miranda. 
Right. And the early drafts of the screenplay, I guess, were done by four different writers. Yes. Not the woman who ultimately we'll yes. talk about. Yep. But And they really followed the source material closely. And they said that it sort of resembled like a Zoolander-like satire mm-hmm. about the fashion world, right? Yeah. So... You know, that didn't really work, they felt like, for the movie and it, and that there wasn't really a strong act, third act in the book, so they needed to invent that. So then they went looking for a director, and I guess they interviewed a long list of directors that had considerable experience making comedies. Mm-hmm. But David Frankel got the job, and he at that point had only done one feature film, but mm-hmm. he had directed TV episodes of Entourage and Sex in the City. Right. Which they say it's not a coincidence that the movie is like a love letter to New York. Like, yes. As you said, that's one of the things people love about it. And I didn't yeah. know that. That makes sense and, to me. And by the way, it does have that feel. Yeah. Like it has an entourage. And, and part of that's 2006. Part of it's the time period. But none of those things are really dated. So it does just have his stamp on it. It's just, it feels like an episode of Entourage. It feels like an episode of Sex and the City. Part of that is Adrian Grenier and yeah, part that's of it true. is New York City. But it still just does have that feeling. Yeah, I did. I, I And I, I love I, both of those. So that makes sense to me. Right, why. right. Yeah, yeah. And it made sense at the time. Those were hugely popular. And it made sense to bring him on despite have not having the exact experience they wanted. He said, though, that he had reservations when, yes. when they first called him. Because yes. he said it seemed undirectable to me. Right. Yeah. That it was a satire rather than a love story. And mm-hmm. when he eventually took a meeting with the producer Wendy Finnerman he was honest and he said listen Miranda's a witch and Annie's <laughs> Andy's motivation was just to get revenge right and he said there was a lot of conflict that ended up with Miranda being humiliated I felt that wasn't satisfying my view was that we should be grateful for excellence why do the excellent people have to be nice yes. and I loved that he saw that more as the angle I yes where Miranda's humiliated is the end of the book she flat out Andy says to Miranda they're in Paris she's actually complaining about the twins passport being expired and so the twins won't get to Paris and Andy's just had it she's just had it and she just turns to her and says fuck you now that is that that doesn't make any sense I mean it makes sense in your revenge fantasy yeah, if yeah. you were working for this person for a whole year and it we've all you, had it, that fantasy <laughs> right and it and it made you like want to crumble inside hmm. but and it made for a decent ending to the book because it wasn't dramatized but on screen that was never gonna work and and you can see that and that was what he was saying and that was what the four previous screenwriters hadn't gotten right was they hadn't really bolstered the villain because in the book it's not supposed to be about the villain the villain is just her bouncing off mm-hmm. and Andy is the real hero but on screen they just knew that uh, he knew that wouldn't translate and then he fi- found Aline who yeah yeah who did it right and he found right well and then he and Fox executives you know started looking for a, a new writer to pen yep. basically a new script from scratch yeah and really rather than adapt the book so closely as we're talking about they you know really found a sort of a new direction and they found Aileen Broche McKenna. She wrote the draft, she says, in about a month. 
Mm-hmm. And then she rewrote it based on everyone's notes. And they all had the same wish list of, of who Meryl. would play Miranda, right? Yes. I mean, Meryl. And they got her, which is so crazy. Yes. Which then made then it made get, getting the movie made so much easier because right. that, now you've got Meryl Streep attached to it. So right. that pretty much sealed the deal for them. Although I think yeah. she, she as a writer and he as, like I said, only on his second feature film, were both like, holy shit. Holy shit. I mean, we she, are in so far over our heads. What are exactly. we doing? Exactly. So, but, but about Meryl, though, I mean, that almost wasn't. She says their first offer was Mm -hmm. at worst insulting at best not reflective of her what she was going to bring to this movie and it's I mean we already said it it's true Meryl Streep is this movie you absolutely I mean it is iconic for her performance now you might love a lot of other pieces of it but at, with any in anyone else's hands, this is not the Devil Wears Prada that we're talking about 16 years later or 14 no. years later, whatever mm-hmm. it is. So she's like, they did not reflect my worth. And she walked away. And yeah. then they doubled, doubled their offer. It. Doubled it. And she was like, okay, we can play now. <laughs> right. But what I thought was so interesting is she said she'd always been hesitant to play hardball in the past. Mm. Um, but that she did, as you said, this time, just really feel like the offer was too low. So she's yep. like, goodbye. And yeah. she said, I was 55 years old and I had just learned at a very late date how to deal on my own behalf. Yes. Which is, you know, you would just think, I don't know. I just think Meryl Streep, even by that yes. age, was like, fuck you, pay me this. you know. But right. the fact that even she was admitting that that was... A departure for her and something that she had to stand up for herself. I was I was surprised by that. I was too. Yeah. Well, because she might have been the great Meryl Streep. Her talent was clear, but you know they must have been thinking she's fifty five. Yeah. Roles aren't going to come around for her all the time. She mm-hmm. should just be happy with this. As great as she is, just past her prime, and she's playing this older woman, and that's all she's ever going to get. Right. Was that not true? True. (laughs) Exactly. And you're right. It was also, you know, 14 years ago or Mm -hmm. even more. And not that we've achieved parity in gender when it comes to compensation, even today. But certainly back then, I'm sure, even as one of the more bankable Hollywood actresses, I'm sure she was often well underpaid compared to, to men. So, yeah. Let's go back to Meryl. So they're writing it, and Aline is has got this new take. It's sort of really about the sacrifices that women make to get ahead in business as opposed to this revenge story, right? right. It's really focused more on women in business with that slant. But two of the most iconic scenes in the movies were Meryl's idea. Now, oh, yes. Yeah, Aline wrote them, obviously, but the the ideas, she was like, I need these two scenes. Meryl yeah. knew what she needed to play. Those are and, in my scenes. I love yeah. these scenes. Oh, yes, yeah. exactly. So I was just going to touch on them real quick. Yeah. First, first, what she said was she wanted something to show the pervasiveness of the business of, the mm-hmm. high, of high-end fashion, which, of course, we get the lumpy, cerulean, blue sweater scene. Mm-hmm. And then the second scene was she just wanted something where Miranda was completely peeled back and raw. And yeah. then that, that ends up being the hotel room scene yeah. in, Par- in Paris. So, so two super yeah. important notes from yes. Meryl. Yes. That, really. That, that turn out to be truly iconic scenes. Yeah. 
Absolutely. No, yeah. she said, Aileen said that being able to write for her was already, you know, such an honor, but how much she contributed in terms yes. of notes and input was just amazing. She's like, she's so smart and yeah. just gets it. Yes, and, she did. And that, that's what made me think of it because you said she wrote it. She wrote the first draft in a month and then took everyone's notes and rewrote it again. And that was part of it. So great. And at yes. that point, she hadn't, we should say, really, this was her big break as a writer. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that and what she yeah. said. But, okay. So then it debuts, comes it out. It debuts. Yep. It comes out opposite Superman Returns. Now it's June 30th, 2006. So, you know, that's the summer blockbuster. And it's got to go up against Superman, one of these, you know, but it actually did really well. And they said that, you know, they managed to clobber the Man of Steel in the Zeitgeist Wars, at least. Um, (laughs) It went on to gross $326 million worldwide for a project that only cost $41 million to make. Um, And if you actually, I looked up what the top grossing movies of that year were to see kind of what else was out there compared to this you've got pirates of the caribbean cars x-men the last stand Hmm. the da vinci code superman returns that was top five grossing highest grossing ice age the meltdown which i'm pretty sure is a cartoon yes it is right it is yeah happy feet also a cartoon. Okay. Oh wait, oh yeah. sorry, in cars number two. Isn't yes. that the cars? Yeah. Yes. So we've got we've got <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> then over the hedge, I don't even remember remember that. Nope. Casino nope. Royale, Talladega okay. Nights. Okay. Uh Click. I don't know what that is. Nope. But nope. we're getting to Devil Wars product. Mission Impossible Three, Borat, and the number fourteen top grossing for two thousand six is the Devil Wars Prada. Uh, although wow. the next two, just you know, The Departed and The Breakup. Wait, The Departed? Yeah, I know. Wow. I I don't know why I thought that was later. That's what it's in. No, and I've checked a different list too. Yeah. Wow. So okay. So, All right. so, I mean, that's what was out then, right? There's no other movie like it on the list. Um, no. That just doesn't no. surprise me, right? right? Because it's not like there are that many mainstream Hollywood films uh, 14 years ago that deal predominantly with uh women in the workforce and two you know successful women trying to navigate their jobs um (laughs) so that with two female leads right Right. this is a coming of age story and the the heroine's biggest obstacle is her female boss right and yes they have love interests just like Miranda also does have you know a husband Uh, yes part of the time but that's ancillary really to to the the professional journey that they're on. I I think that there are still though I some parts in it that that seem a little dated to me. I don't know. Or that Interesting. So like what? I don't I didn't find anything. I was actually surprised how not dated it was, especially and especially the fashion. Oh, and the fashion pretty... is definitely not. You're right. That's... It's shocking because it, you, it certainly could be. I mean, episodes of Sex and the City are extremely dated. Now, not in a, just almost in a nostalgic way. You're like, oh, look at that. Right. But they really did a great job of doing timeless, classic pieces, classic looks that really could be from 
I, I mean, I don't know if it's just the cycle of where we've gone 14 years later. I feel like that's all stuff you could wear literally today. Yeah. You know what? It's probably dated is not the right word. I mean, I've read some things about sort of statements that are made in it that maybe they're just they think are not very feminist, even though it's held out as sort of this mm. feminist anthem, if you will. So maybe that's oh, not okay. really dated. Okay. Sure. It's more like the go ahead, hire the smart fat girl. Yeah. You know, and they're saying like, oh yeah, of course, you know, what was this movie supposed to be about empowering women? But you know, the fact that she's a size six is fat. And, and at the end she points out that she's actually a four. Right. But that didn't, see, that didn't bother me because that to me is what the fashion, that's a, a exactly. fact in the fashion industry. Like, exactly. they really do make clothes for size four in that high-end world of fashion. Exactly, the high-end world, exactly. Now, it has, fashion has come a long way to fitting every woman uh, at every size and putting them on display. But you're talking about high-end fashion. This is not about every woman. This isn't about, you know, short women. All of it is right. going to work. So right. uh, this is a very nuanced, very particular world. And yes, in that world, then and now, a size six is fat. Like, yeah. there's nothing. It's not a, it's not a commentary on whether you should be a size six or not. But if you're in that world, that's what that's going to be categorized yeah. It's not really, I don't know. I don't have an issue with that at, I, at all. I, I didn't either. And actually, Aileen McKenna said, like, that, like what you said, in that world, she is kind of portly. And yeah. that she thought it was important, it was an, an important way to differentiate them, that they, they live in separate worlds. Like, she's yes. not part of that world. Yes. Or at least when she first enters it. Yes. Um, like, another one people say is like, oh... That she isn't Andy being unattractive is is made to seem like it's useless. So like Andy's not effective until mm-hmm. or good at right. her job until she's clad in the expensive clothes and wearing the makeup. Like pre makeover <sighs> Andy is like yeah. the worst thing anyone has ever seen, <laughs> yes. according to Emily. Yes. Um, like no one can even look at her or deal with her. And yeah. only once she makes herself attractive is she then successful. But it's so hard to separate that comment from you're in fashion and yeah I know the person who does this best is Nigel Stanley Tucci who's amazing Um, also one of my favorite scenes we could just cover them now (laughs) yes I know but you know this is the world that you're in and if you look frumpy now it shouldn't matter if you're a lawyer and you look frumpy or you're you know to some extent or anything else but if you're in high-end fashion, I'm sorry, you have to be impeccable. And she was not. So no. how can that be? That's not a that's not a feminist or non-feminist thing. This is just a, like, look where you are. Look yes. what your industry you're in, you mm-hmm. know? It's yeah. like being like, well, it doesn't matter if I can't give a great speech. I should still be a politician. Well, then you have, you know, it's... This like you is, don't have you're the in the wrong exactly for that to be job. in that exactly that's yeah. what it is it's not really about her appearance it's about her appearance in the world that she's in right so i, I agree yeah. yeah yeah um another one people say is yes it's supposed to be you know it's great that there's two women leads and again celebrating you know feminist notions but why are the women so fucking mean to each other like mm. why can't women be friends or why do they have to be shrill and catty and they sabotage each other and you know Mm. I'm like all right I mean Emily that was clearly her role yeah but was she what who was sabotaging who 
I don't see sabotage. I see someone not working to their potential and not caring about what she does. And then other people around her that do don't have a fucking tolerance for it. I wouldn't either. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's And then okay. Andy fucks her over later, so she... Right. It's know. really Andy who does that. Yes. I was just yeah. going to say, then Andy's the one who does that. So, yeah. But... but um, I still don't think that's catty. I think yeah. that is... It, now, it's cutthroat and maybe not the way everyone has to be, but it is not catty. This is not, like, catty women behavior to me yeah. at all. At all. Yeah. Plus, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um the other one, and this is the last one that, that I think gets raised a lot, is that uh, notion that successful women are threatening to men and that throughout this movie, you know, it's clear that women can't be successful and have good relationships with men. Mm, yeah. You've got Andy's relationship with Nate, you know, yeah, cratering, and then yes. Miranda's second marriage. We just already had one divorce. And, right. and you hear her husband even say, like, he's not able to, like, handle the fact that he's like considered her accessory or whatever right, right. Um, but you know i on that one people yeah. apparently out what? there in the universe yes. like just hate adrian on the internet it's, oh i yeah, do Grenier, his character i do because they believe you know that he's like sabotaging her ambition or whatever and there's See, a lot I- out there about that I and he's whiny when she misses yes. his birthday and all yes. that. <laughs> I did think he was a complete useless asshole, but I don't think he was necessary. I don't think it was that she was the woman. I don't think he was threatened by her success. I think it was a lot of a whole host of other issues. So that's kind of, I don't know. It sounds like. But that like, I read that Aileen McKenna said that that comes up more than and almost more than anything else, even years, years later now when she's on like a podcast or being right. or something like, why was Nate such basically like a whiny little bitch? And why didn't he want her to succeed? And why were yeah. her friends so annoyed by it? Like she was just trying to be successful. And, you know, she actually says like, like the thing was is that Nate was kind of her conscience and mm-hmm. he was just pointing out to her again she's the one that wrote it so this is how she feels but right. that he was just meant to be pointing out how she's betraying her own values, own self right yes yeah, her I, own yes. self not like yes she goes okay fine so maybe he was a little whiny about his birthday but yeah. you know that that's not what he was really mad about no, he's like, no. She, she's like she was being a hypocrite and he's yeah. just calling her on it and yeah. she says I think it's interesting now that we're so encouraging people to be like, get what's yours, that we don't see that she's Charlie Sheen in Wall Street. She's like, right? And you don't Ugh, want her to be Gordon I, Gecko. I highly disagree with that, though. Okay. Highly disagree. And this is, we'll get to this when we get to Andy and Miranda. That is my fundamental problem is she is not. And I wish she was. And that. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, so, but anyway, so, she defends yeah. Nate, basically, which I think is true that she this is at least how she meant to write it that he wasn't supposed to be um stifling her ambition he was supposed to act as sort of a foil like you know i look agree. at what you're doing be i a little agree. bit of a mirror because the point is her ambition was never to be in that industry to succeed in that industry i mean that's not ambition people i think are confused about what that word means i think if that's yeah it's not you know like being the best at some in a fashion magazine when all you want to do is write is not being the best that's not that's not being ambitious she was being opportunistic 
and yeah. whiny. And I mm-hmm. really, I, that character is well, so flawed in the wrong ways for me. Do you want to talk? Should we get to Andy? Sure. And Amanda? You want to talk Sh- about Andy first? Then no. I, feel like, I mean, no? no. I can't. How can you put <laughs> know, anyone but, before? But you seem like you're on a roll. I, I will. No, I'll come back. To I'm it. interested I, in this n- view of Andy. Yeah. No, I. But but you have to put Miranda's the queen. You have. She has to go first. When yeah. we're going to talk about complicated women, it's Miranda Priestly. Right. In this, so in this I movie. mean, yeah. I know she's the villain and, and she's made yeah. out to be the type of person who's easy to hate and there seems to be so much wrong with her. But from the perspective of a feminist, but really more importantly from the lens of how we view characters here on the podcast, I, I think she's certainly more complicated than that. I oh, I, yeah. I have a little problem with the villain um, label. Yeah, um, well, I think the villain, if when you boil it down hero and villain don't mean good guy and bad guy they the villain is the person who is going to throw up all of the obstacles in the hero's path to get what they want that's really what it is she's no, then not she, yeah that, and she absolutely is she is yeah, every, she is. every uh, obstacle to andy getting what she wants and she is I yeah. don't think of her though as purely a bad guy in in any way, really. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I do. I mean, she is the villain in the story, yes. but I agree with you um, that it's not not as a bad guy. I mean, right. look, when we were introduced to her character, we we know that she's someone to be afraid of. Right, that first mm-hmm. scene where she comes into work early and the staff, everybody's rushing around to prepare the office for her high standards and. He screams out, gird yes. your loins, and everyone's yes. just running around like lunatics to prepare themselves for, like, the quote-unquote devil who wears yes. Prada to yes. appear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she makes quite an entrance. Uh, yes. She's uh, exacting, uh, mm-hmm. intransigent, uh, kind mm. of a detestable boss, really, sure. uh, who, who clings tightly, I, I say, to her tyrannical ways. Yes. She's scary, right? I mean, yeah. she... She's really, people are afraid of her. She can be mean. Yes. She's direct, yes. which I love, actually. Yes. <laughs> uh, she says exactly what she wants. She's demanding. She's totally unreasonable at times, expects everyone to do what she wants when she wants it. And really, even before she thinks of it or asks for it, you're just supposed to know what she mm-hmm. wants. And if you want an explanation, you get, that's all. Yes. I love. That's yes. all. I want to know if I can employ that just in life. Like, yes. people ask me things, I'm just going to go, that's, <laughs> that's all. all. <laughs> walk out <laughs> um so oh, you know personally we know that she's made a lot of sacrifices in order to run this magazine she's yes. been divorced yes. we learned that her current husband is having trouble being her plus one and yes. by the end he asked for a divorce yep her kids seem from what we see of them moderately spoiled uh <laughs> you know if you uh if you give andy the task of getting them the unpublished manuscript of the new harry potter book you have a sense of uh, sort of all while the she's things. doing her science, their science projects. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So um, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the ridiculous yeah. demands that she has yeah. on her. But what? But really, despite all of this, and what's interesting to me is to just stop. Which you know, everyone says is to stop and ask yourself if your feelings on this character would be different if her name was Michael, right? right? If this were a man. Right. And would we be having this conversation about 
the way she runs a business, whether she's likable, whether she's too demanding. And I, I don't think so. I really don't. And yeah, and that's what I, you know, Andy says that. Yes, she, she does. Miranda, to which I was Christian impressed Thompson. with that even 14 years ago or whatever, you know. Right. But, I mean, she said, you're right. They even had it written in to the yeah. dialogue that she right. says no one would mind any of her toughness and instead they'd praise her for her excellence at her job. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I think that was intentionally, you know, put in based on, you know, what the director said about the direction he wanted to go. Um, but, you know, and, and Meryl herself has said that she really was interested in exploring, you know, the pressures that are on a woman in that kind of position of power. And, you know, being called a bitch or cold or difficult. And yeah. that's what she was really trying to explore. And that's, I think that clearly comes through in yes. her interpretation of Miranda. I agree. But you know what's interesting is I just think that it's less acceptable for even a man or a woman. Now, my scope is specific but limited. But I do just think it's it's less acceptable for either a man or a woman to be a tyrant in 2020, even though I'm not involved in it in any way. I'm very fascinated by the fine dining world. And I listen to quite a few podcasts, David Chang, uh, we've talked about on this podcast already, uh, Christina Tosi, Mm -hmm. Eric Ruper. I listened, who has, who transformed himself from one of those people who would scream and throw stuff and berate his employees to practices Buddhist meditation, employs them in his kitchen and in his life. And yes, so I do think it's just less acceptable to be that way either way. But in 2006, I do think it was more of a direct reflection that it was not the same there was not the same standard for a man and a woman and a man could kind of be behind doors and just be a boss and a woman was criticized for that or or called a bitch or cold or ice queen kind of thing mm-hmm. as opposed to the man who was just getting shit done right but right. I do think with millennials entering the workforce there's less of a tolerance for that kind of ty- tyrannical behavior period full stop for any gender yeah I think that's fair yeah. And it's funny because my husband worked for for an agent that if I said their name, you would absolutely know who they are. This is just mm-hmm. a person who's relatively common name, the way Anna Wintour is now. And you don't even have to know anything about fashion. So he worked for this agent right out of law school and was terrorized. I mean, when if you think for one moment that any of these stories are exaggerated or ridiculous, you would be 100% wrong and naive because they yeah. are very accurate. My husband moved on. He went into actual practice. He stayed in that whole realm. He wanted to be in that industry. So that was important to him. He did his best. Then he moved on. Fast forward really like 15 years later, he now works with that same man who Mm -hmm. has now progressed he's gone to the top and my husband works with him in a different capacity and he's a different person he's still the same person but he's doesn't act the way he did then right and so that to me is a very specific like that's the same exact person (laughs) yeah who who acted a different way 
15 years ago. Who has ago. changed. Exactly. Yeah. Because because the entire workforce, because the, the entire culture of working life has changed, not yes. because necessarily the person wanted to. So no, I can completely see that, even from yeah. law firm standards. Like yes. The stories of yes. hazing, when we were young associates of, yes. and the hazing and partners screaming at you in the yes. middle of the night and yes. all that. I mean... Um, it still goes on a little bit, but it's much different environment now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. Yes. I, and, I was just going to yeah. say one more thing, which I think we'll talk about in the scenes and you mentioned earlier, is that we do see other sides of Miranda. Yes. Uh, and not a lot, but, you know, there is the scene you cited too in the Paris yes. Hotel room where she tells Andy talk. about her divorce. Yeah. But yeah. that's one where we get to see a more vulnerable side and I think even at the end, which we'll talk about when she and Andy are in the car. So when she's saying, you know, everybody wants to be us. Um, yeah. So there are, despite all the, you know, crazy tyrannical things I mentioned, there, there, she's careful to have in these other moments where we get to see other sides of Miranda. Yeah, I think it was perfect for the story. This was just enough to really understand she's a human being and that was kind of all you needed to do to not make her that satire which the first four screenwriters got wrong that satirical uh character but before we go on to andy i wanted to talk a little bit about meryl streep's character inspirations and now obviously we know the character is based on anna wintour because we know the author of the book was the assistant for anna wintour but Meryl has always stood by the fact that she did not use that at all in her inspiration for her acting. She said she took her inspiration from men, but she was very tight-lipped about who those men were until the 10-year anniversary, and she spoke a little bit more candidly, I think probably because one of them had passed away. Mm -hmm. So her two character inspirations were for the voice was Clint Clint. Eastwood, which I love because, right? Because... And and this was in one of the things we read, uh, the, the oral history, how at the table read, everyone was just waiting for Miranda to speak. And like, what would she sound like? They knew the words that were on the page, but what would she sound like? Would she bark? Would she scream? Would she? And then she came out with this raspy whisper. And Meryl has said it's because Clint Eastwood is so commanding and everyone has to lean in to hear him. Mm-hmm. And she just thought that was the way to play it. Which is so fucking brilliant. So yeah. brilliant. Incredible. And then, and then the other inspiration was Mike Nichols. And that was for the delivery of her cutting criticisms. Mm-hmm. And Mike Nichols is a famous director who directed Meryl in Heartburn and Postcards from the Edge. He also directed many movies you've probably seen. The Graduate, The Birdcage, Working Girl, Closer, I, so many others. But he could deliver criticism with... a. She, I think she said a curly cue of irony yes, that, exactly. yeah, that made even the target laugh. And mm-hmm. that she, she nailed that. Meryl Streep nailed that in her Miranda Priestly. And yeah. I, I loved those two little bits of, I of that her inspiration, amazing. right? And yeah. I will talk about that more. But I, yeah, I thought that was great. And part of it, you know, that the voice is she also uh, said in some meetings that she wanted Miranda to be the calm at the center of the storm. Mm. Like she might mm-hmm. inspire frenzy in others. Right. But she herself had this ability to maintain a calm. 
And that's one of the reasons that she's so terrifying to people. Right. Uh, right. Because, yes. you know, and it's so true. Everyone's buzzing around her at all times. Yeah. And yet she is always calm. Yes. Which is so cool. Yes. No, I, I think it was brilliant. And, you know, obviously I'm not an actress, but I so would have gone in there like barking and yelling and, you know, screaming and she knew that this was not that character. She wanted and, you to be leaning in to hear her. And they That's said, she, like, when she came in, like you said, to that first reading, I mean, they're like, she was terrifying. Like, yeah. she, she's like, she scared the hell out of us. Right. So, Andy, uh, I mean, Andy, she is our quote-unquote heroine, right? She is the character whose journey drives this story. I had so many issues with her. I Sometimes she's described as scrappy. Eh, I mean, I see moments of that. Yeah. But I think I've made peace with it in that she was just in the wrong place, right? She should not have been in the fashion industry. I know she wanted to write and she thought this would kind of be a ticket to, to anywhere after that. But uh, it's hard to watch. She's like railing against fashion but also trying to get ahead in fashion I mean I know she wants to be a writer but she is in fashion she is working in fashion she's yeah, working for exactly. a fashion magazine so right. her her refusal to sort of play along for so long yeah it did not work for me it's not yeah. you know that's not to me that's not plucky scrappy to me plucky and scrappy is Emily Right. She is being Emily Blunt, her character in the book, also named Emily. She is killing herself to get ahead. Now, does she want to be Miranda Priestley's assistant for the rest of her life? Absolutely not. But she is all in. This is the place she's supposed to be. That to me is what reminded me of my young law firm days was killing yourself because not that you wanted to kill yourself or not that you wanted to end up here, but it was to get ahead. And that, to me, is real ambition. Andy, I didn't know what she... I didn't understand it, frankly. I just didn't know what she was doing. Like, yeah. I know I know what they told me, that after a year, then she'd be able to write her ticket. But I don't know. I just... No, you're I think right. It was too far away to me. It would be like... And I've had this happen. When, when I was an associate and I was more of the Emily, right? To your mm-hmm. point. Like... Yep really truly like in it to win it whatever yes. and then and this is like this is a major law firm like corporate yeah. law firm of course you know people do pro bono but like sort of like on the side when yeah you, we run a business like we right need to do billable work yeah and there was like such an arrogant like self-important other associate who only wanted to do like pro bono and make uh-huh. a difference i'm like what the fuck are you doing here then? doing like, here like, right like, i'm sorry like there's plenty of yeah. other places you could be where you could be doing that full time like i'm not saying again a large part of what we do is to is you know to help in public interest and pro bono things but it's it's not the we, we're no profit enterprise right right and and that's something it seems like you might aspire to or develop like as you're you know, working in this one particular field, you might see the right. need for but the when help. You're the and lowly exactly. person on the totem pole. You just better you do be what billing. you're supposed to do. Yes. You yes. sit at your billing station and you bill hours. And you don't have an attitude with no. people. That's really what it is. She has, yeah. as as we get, to, we'll get to that scene where Stanley Tucci's character yes. tells her that. Like, don't, don't sit there and be arrogant about how you're 
above the very yes. thing you've been hired to do. Yes. Yeah. And I also had a hard time. Now, I have been, I found a little bit more empathy for her thinking about situations that I was in later in life where I was just clearly in the wrong place, but still felt like I had to be there. The problem with her, now for me, I was older. I was responsible for a family. I was the breadwinner. I was, I truly, in some ways, had no choice, at least for a short period of time. Now, I always figured my way out of those places because that's a really bad place to be for anybody. So then I was like, okay, I can see I've been in that bad place and whined about it. But she kept saying, she said over and over, I have no choice. But that was really hard to understand when it's your first job out of college. You have nothing to pay for. You have no one to, you know, maybe she's got student debt. Maybe not. I don't, they didn't address that. But still, like you could go, it's not like she was making $100,000, you know, and then could have at entry level. And and if she had gone elsewhere, she would only be making 20000 She was not making good money. So yeah. And I feel like, unlike Miranda, like, if we swapped Andy for a boy, well, Andy is a boy's name, but, like, I don't think this is us being, having any issue with a, on a gender basis. Like, I think, I would say the same thing if this Andy was Andrew. I mean, I'd be like, stop whining. You said you wanted to do one thing. You're doing another. You made that choice. Right. Live with it. Exactly. At least for as long as you're supposed to be living with it. Now, if it's a short period of time, then fine. No, I I know for sure because, like I said, I was dating my husband when he was working for this high-powered agent and he he didn't want to be there and I understood it. It was taxing and hard and not, it's not something to like applaud, but at the same time, this is your choice and you, you make the choice and you stick with it as long as you can and then you make plans to have a different choice so you know I I had a hard time with Andy really hard time so did I it gets better I think towards the end once she sort of changes her attitude oh oh I I don't know I don't I I think it changes a little in the middle and then then gets worse again yeah I think to me it does yes yeah because then she really has the way Nate then she really has sold out. And I'm like, well, now what are you doing? Like, you don't even, you've lost your way, miss. <laughs> like, Right. But, but what about the end? You think she, I, does she come around for you? Or because now she <sighs> finally realizes, you know, this is not for her. No. And throws her phone in the fountain and goes back to Nate and apologizes. No, no. And, I, no. It's too no. little too late. Or uh, you just- No, it's just still <laughs> the wrong thing. I don't know. She seems to be very confused about what her choices are. Like, I don't think you should have done that. It wasn't smart at all. You should have come up with a, as you were doing there, you should come up with plan B and then get out of it gracefully and the right way. And having that person on your side, at least to some extent, which I mean, I which guess she ends up. She uh, does though. Uh, apparently but she gets lucky. That, that's facts. a movie magic right there. I, movie like, magic. I on. don't buy that. Yeah. For that a would not happen. Moment. Miranda yeah. Priestley would be like, "Fuck that girl." Yes. I thought she was like me, but you know what? I just turned around in yeah. Paris it, Fashion Week that I blew her ass to, and that, she just walked away. Exactly. So and bye-bye. that's not okay. And that she'd be like, "That's all." 
Yeah, exactly. I was not. No, I was not a fan of that. No, but oh. we're we're getting ahead. Do you want to talk yeah. about scenes? So, oh yes, you want to yeah, start well, a little earlier than that. For me, um, yeah. this movie starts at the thirty minute mark. This is what, when this is the thirty minute mark. <laughs> all I really want to watch when Miranda is in Miami and she can't get a plane in a hurricane. Oh, okay, great. Go. Um, I like. Yes, and then the next day we see Miranda dressing Andy down. With one of my favorite unsung lines of the movie, Miranda says, I had hope. My God, I live on it. Which is just such an amazing line coming out of her mouth. It's probably true, but just so unexpected. And then she goes on to say, but you ended up disappointing me more than the other silly girls. And then Andy leaves the office and goes straight to Nigel Stanley Tucci and is like crying. She hates me. And even when I don't do even when I do something right, she doesn't even acknowledge it. And then when I do something wrong, it's the worst thing in the world. And Nigel kind of listens for a minute. And then he's like, wake up. Yes. (laughs) This is and my favorite part. You are not trying. Trying You are whining. whining. Yes. Wake up, sweetheart. Uh, no, he says wake up six, I think. I thought he said six as in size yeah. six. Yeah, well, he does say that at some point. He does but either call way, her six. Because I thought I, that was awesome. Like, did he just call yes. her six to yes. refer to her size? Um, but, but yeah. And then she changes her appearance. She starts reading mm-hmm. Runway, as she so fucking should have right away. I mean, that's bullshit. What the fuck? I know. You're, yeah. You're working uh, and then the taking some pride in her job. And Miranda notices. And then we have the first time she calls her Andrea rather than Emily because she calls her the wrong name the entire first part this half hour. And then she calls her Andrea and she gets the responsibility of handling the book. And then she screws that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But instead of firing her, Miranda... She goes upstairs. Why would you go up the stairs? I, I, Emily Blunt why didn't you just go upstairs get in bed with her and ask her for a bedtime story I mean it's ridiculous it made no sense she fell for the jokes of like an eight-year-old girls yes oh yeah come up here she's like oh okay yeah yeah and then instead of firing her as she really should have as and in reality she would have Miranda just ups the ante by telling her to get the seventh Harry Potter book this is kind of my favorite part of Andy she's really being scrappy here she is like how can I figure this out yeah. she and even though she wants to give up which is normal and natural and she calls Nate and says she's gonna quit she doesn't and she she pulls through and <laughs> and then she kind of you see her really being invested and again another unsun line of Emily Blunt's because she has so many other good ones but this is one I love she says I rarely say this to people who aren't me but you have got to calm down (laughs) (laughs) that's so great and it ends with her to me the best part it begins with Miranda in Miami not able to get out in in a hurricane and then it ends with Andy putting the Harry Potter book on her desk and and her saying what are my twins gonna do share which is perfect and brilliant but of course Andy has an answer Mm. to that and I'm like yes this was the Andy I wanted to see and of course, it's very—it's a little too short-lived for me. So that's I kind of that. a cheat because that's a few scenes. So it's but, a few, yes. But, but that's I, my big Andy. That's that's my Andy rah rah because my rest of mine are all Miranda scenes, right? And that one I had as the 
my Andy one was the one with Stanley Tucci where yes. he's just like, you know, you only deign to work here. You know, mm-hmm. don't, you know, come on. Yes. Um, but to her credit, you're right. She does quickly realize, you know, so, so you're right. I'm screwing this up. Like, all right, yeah. boy, like, let's do this. Like, yes. and it does start yes. with a physical or external makeover, but mm-hmm. it's really the internal makeover that I think starts to happen after he yes. you know shine, turns the mirror on her now is yeah. the um cerulean blue before that or after that oh I good do call like you're right iconic scene you're right you're right I was but, leading from Andy into it but you're yeah, right but that's okay that's this is a Miranda before. scene yes um yes and I know I mean people have talked about it forever and it's it is an iconic scene and I kind of forgot, though. I really like it. I guess it's iconic yeah. for a reason. I mean, yes. I just love how she dresses her down. Yes. And like, basically, like, you and your lumpy blue sweater. <laughs> you you love know, it. it's just sort of like you just think you, you basically, you put that on to show people, you know, that you're sort of above Mm-hmm. all this right. when really all it shows is that like you're basically wearing a sweater that was selected for you by people in this room as a domino stuff. effect of what oh, i've did you know two years everything ago <laughs> i've done exactly yes. and all the people in this room yeah all for that sweater to end up in some tragic casual corner <laughs> where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin yeah like basically it's like have a little respect kind of yes. to your point you know yes. and I know you said earlier this is one of the ones that Meryl added. Yes. I mean, she didn't well, write it, but she no. suggested the idea to round out her character and establish yes. like her industry prowess. Yes. And all that. And I did um, listen to a podcast with Aileen McKenna who said that this, there was some like nugget of this kind of concept in one of the prior drafts that the writers had done, but that she took seeds of it and wrote a longer speech but she was like it was maybe half a page Uh and she gave it to the director who gave it to Meryl and Meryl kept giving comments and it kept expanding and Mm -hmm. she said and then it was finally like a page and a half which she says that's she goes that's a lot in in what we do and I gave it back to him but she said she was like listen if you want me to cut this back like mm, you know whatever like I get it this is long and she said that every single word of it is in the movie Oh, it's so good. Yeah, right? So good. And she, she yeah. says, that's just all Meryl. Like, yes. And, but Meryl's like, I didn't write it, but she's like, yeah, but it's your notes. Yeah. And it's her, it deli- yeah, it's her, de- and it, and really it's her delivery. Yeah. Oh, completely. So two notes about this, though, that I didn't know and found fascinating. And, but, I, and are you done with the scene? Because I don't want to yes. ruin it because it no, will no, ruin it. So two things. All right. One doesn't ruin it so badly, but one is so. Aline wrote it, but she needed guidance yeah. from Patricia Fields, the, yeah. um, you know, the costume designer. And it was originally going to be a plaid skirt. Yeah, I read which, that. Which would have not had no. the same, no, at all, the same delivery as Cerulean Blue, right? Oh, oh that, so good. Yeah, yes. But then the other note was apparently Aline has been approached many times and what she wrote, as amazing as it is, and and was intended to demonstrate, you know, the top down flow of things, and I think it still does. But it, apparently, it's just it's completely wrong. And oh yeah, yeah, fabricated, fabricated, yes. and people and, get so mad at her about it. Yes. 
yes and wrong okay. and like this isn't how it works that right. would bother me if I knew that that would bother me good thing yeah. I know nothing about the fashion industry so it doesn't but bother nobody me in the fashion industry watched this movie anyway because they all were afraid of Anna Wintour I heard right? so like people oh, were so afraid funny. to even like be seen watching it but oh, no I did funny. read that too that that's she funny. completely fabricated what's your next scene because mine I don't, I'm going all the way to Paris so yeah me too all the way oh, to okay. Paris to the oh, hotel so the yeah. hotel room okay Oh, so what about we? What about the montage, which is just infinitely watchable? The clothing montage. Oh, oh, yeah, right, yeah. That is just a perfect scene, and how she's doing the exact same walk, and they just keep cutting to her in new outfits. How the fact that fourteen years later, these outfits are still. Like I would wear, I mean, some of the details are maybe a little different, like a rounded edge when a pointed edge would oh, now, yeah, but, but, but it, they're pretty flawless. I mean, they're timeless classic pieces somehow yeah. that, that just don't, you're right. That is, does not feel dated at all. That aspect. Not at all. And that's pretty crazy because fashion is something that very quickly can feel dated and and really yeah right root a movie in its that's usually the telltale sign of of when it is like that's a brilliant scene but even like you're right the whole thing just works and it works in 2006 and it works in 2020 and i can't imagine it ever not working it's probably one of my, my absolute favorite but for the purposes of this podcast there's not a lot going on yeah true but so, until i had yes yeah, yeah. Yes, but I was—I don't know if there's other things in Paris. Mine was uh, the one I, we touched on earlier with the hotel. her talking about the the divorce that that her mm-hmm. husband. This is when Meryl Streep, as she said, wanted a scene without her armor, the uh, unpeeled scene she called it, mm-hmm. um, and that she just wanted that face without its protective glaze. And to get a glimpse of the woman in the businesswoman. And she's got, you know, no makeup on. And she's just admitting to her that her husband has asked for a divorce. Of course, it's it's literally, I, don't, I didn't look at the time. Yeah. Was it a minute? And then she goes right back to doing work. Right. But you well, I mean, the some... whole thing is work. That's the yeah. thing. So I, that's what I really love about the scene is the writing. It's just so brilliant. Now, I love that Meryl wanted the scene and I agree, but I think the impulse for me as a writer would have been to set up the vulnerability and then keep it because you Mm -hmm. set up the vulnerability in the way she looks. She literally has no makeup on. By the way, when are we going to comment on how fucking amazing Meryl Streep looks? I cannot believe she's 55. In this movie. Yes. In this movie. Yeah, Unbelievable. Meryl Streep in 2006 was looking pretty goddamn flawless. Well, well, she was very glamorous too. I mean, her position and yeah well so that's definitely something i noticed in the first time but this time around i'm like talking about her skin and her like she looks amazing i think she still looks amazing oh she does what is she now i mean 70 whatever yes she's got a very youthful appearance she does she does okay anyway so in the scene as a writer i think i would have been like okay she's vulnerable and i would have kept her I would have had her speaking vulnerably. Yeah, me too. But she doesn't. She goes in the other direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are some of the most unnecessarily cruel lines that Miranda delivers through the entire movie are in the scene. Because she's not usually cruel. She is critical and 
the details of your competence bore me or something. You know, she says uh, <laughs> other lines. She said that to Emily in the beginning. So they do s- kind of set her up that way. But really, she's mostly just being accurate and unfiltered. But here she is pretty cruel. And, you know, as, and it never stops. As soon as Andy comes into the room, the first she's trying to take her schedule out of her bag. And she says, by all, when, by all means, move at a glacial pace. You know how that thrills me. I mean, that's the first thing she says to her. And even when she's talking about the divorce, it, it could be vulnerable. But she's saying it in a way that it's not. Because she's like, oh, Andy's like, oh, so I won't have to fetch him from the airport. And then she launches into this whole thing about fetching. Are you going to fetch, fetch, fetch then? You know, and like treating her like a dog. Yeah. (laughs) It's really pretty cruel. Yeah. Which is amazing because you might think she would go, I don't know where I went wrong or blah. You know, she doesn't do that. She is, in fact. Goes back to the seating chart. Yes. And Snoop Snoop Dogg needs to be at her table now. So I think that's just some brilliant writing to go in the other direction. She does not cry. She does not lean on her in any way, which you could also see, you know, like you could have justified that a moment of weakness. She's alone in her hotel room. She's not putting on a show. She's not, uh, you know, she's not organizing a boardroom. She's not directing people. She is alone in her hotel room with her assistant. If there's ever a moment she could be vulnerable in her words, this is it. And I know. And Aline does not. Have restraint. Yes. You know? she, she goes the other way, in fact, has her lash out and be cruel. And I thought that yeah. was just brilliant writing. She said that it was, she didn't want it to be pandering. Like she wanted to show her vulnerability, but also maintain her edge and sharpness, which yeah. clearly she did. She did. She did. Yeah. Yeah. What about them in the car when they have their chat? Did okay, before I did not yeah. have that. I have one more, and it's before that scene. It's ah. when Andy tries to warn her yeah. um, about you know the changes that are happening, and that oh my gosh, what uh, what is Jacqueline? The other? Jacqueline, thank yeah. you. Uh, Jacqueline is going to be in, in charge of runway. Whatever. Andy comes and tries to warn her, and it is a good. I thought it was well done. Andy's kind of delivery is well done. And she's she's saying, you know, so you can I want to tell you so you can fix this. Now, Miranda could have been cruel. She could have laughed at her and be like, please, I'm 10 steps ahead of you. You've got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. She could have dressed her down as she's done many times in this movie. She could have given her a nod and been like, hmm, now I don't need this, but I appreciate what she does later. She appreciates Andy's loyalty and right. perseverance. But in that moment, what does she say? Do I smell freesia? Yeah. <laughs> so fucking brilliant. The subversion of our expectations is not the same as in the hotel room. Her response is a non-response. And she reminds Andy of her job as she's doing her job. This right. is, And I was like, oh, my God, that is so good. Right. And, Again, and I would not have thought of no, that. No, no. Mm-hmm. I would have gone to the more obvious, either dress her down, lash out at her because you know, she's ridiculous if she thinks she's going to help you. And then, or even a a moment of solidarity, like, okay, but just to not respond and to say, do I smell Frisia? I mean, oh, you're just like, wait, what? And then they're in the car. Right. When now Miranda explains that she knew all along what was happening and that she had basically taken care of it. She'd figured out a way to get the younger 
mm-hmm. French Vogue woman another job so she wouldn't take hers. Yes. Um, and I love when she's like looking out the window and she's like, there is no one who could do what I do. Mm-hmm. It's like, bam. Yes. That's right. Yes. Miranda. Yeah. But then when she says, you know, I really see a great deal of myself in you, Andrea. Mm-hmm. And Aunt, and Andy's like, whoa, wait. You know, yeah. she's all, ooh, I would never do what you did to Nigel. Uh, you already did. Just, you already did. Yeah. To Emily. Yeah. And I, again, back to the way she says it. You know, but I didn't have a choice. And she's like, Ugh. yes, yes, you did. Yeah. And you chose to get ahead. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I just thought that was so great it is it is but that's what gives ambition the a wrong name to me because she was getting ahead for getting ahead's purposes right i am all for ambition to achieve your own highest goal purpose passion the problem was she was doing it just to get ahead and not understanding where she was going she doesn't need to be the first assistant she doesn't need to be in Paris she doesn't need to have a closet full of couture that's not her at all so her standing up for herself at that point is very misguided to me yeah yeah because when she did that to Emily she wasn't thoughtful about it she didn't reflect on it she and even then in this moment in the car she still believes she had no choice like woe is me again yes no you which she points out, you had a choice. Yeah. You chose to get ahead and she's still like confused. Like, yes. what? Yes. I did? Like, yes. what? Yeah, you did. And yeah. only when she realizes, oh, wait, I don't, what if I don't want your life? Does right. she suddenly, you know, right. turn around and walk away? Right. But shouldn't she have known that for a long yeah, time? Yes. That's yes. what bothers me is like the, her yeah. revelation was something that was under her nose the whole time. And this coming of age story where she almost essentially returns to herself, there wasn't enough change in her character. And that was another frustrating part of it for me. She didn't redeem herself. The redemptive, the good, juicy Andy stuff for me was when she stopped seeing herself as a victim, yes. turned herself around and started doing her fucking job like it yeah. mattered. And that yes. was... that was And going, going for it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Not doing it half-assed anymore. Right. And yeah. then pretending no, that she was trying so hard when she wasn't. Because she right. was trying so hard to what? Be smart or be good at her job. But part of being good at your job is being interested in the part. Oh, and by the way, we never we didn't discuss Anne Hathaway has no accent throughout, the, even though she's from the Midwest, has no accent throughout the whole movie except for one perfect line, which is when Emily Blunt says, um, you. this is a fashion magazine and interest in fashion is very, it's a, it's a prerequisite. And she goes, what makes you think I'm not interested in fashion? <laughs> it's it's like, so good. Oh, so God. Good. I yeah. do love Emily Blunt in this. This oh. was a breakout role for her too. Emily Blunt. So we didn't really talk about this. I don't particularly relate to either Miranda oh, yeah. or Andy. But Emily Blunt is the one I relate to because she is doing she's doing the shit work. You got to be willing to do. I am so willing to do shit work to get where you want to go. Emily was the one really I could relate to the most. Probably most people too because she is, as you said, she's the breakout star. She's the character people love in this movie. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and a lot of her lines are, she says, quoted back to her all the time. I know. Just one stomach flew away from my gold weight. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, she has some great lines. And she also yeah. said she was so nervous and wasn't sure if she was going to be able to pull this off very early on. Because the, the character of Emily in the book is American and just supposed to be really driven. And... Emily played it with this other layer, with this clipped British accent. And she got a deep, throaty laugh, she says, from Meryl at the first table read. She's like, okay, now I know how to play this character, and this is going to work. And she does. She's really funny, but also bitchy, and also very good at her job. And she's she's everything. Everything. It's awesome. Before we move on to what she said, I had a couple other bits that I just thought were brilliant that tie into what she said because if I haven't talked about how brilliant I think the screenplay is I think I've mentioned it a couple times and now I will talk about it in a few other ways so Nate is the biggest departure from the book he is actually literally a different person in the book her boyfriend's name is Alex and he's a school teacher so yes so so him, him being Nate and being a chef is completely a a departure but I did find him to be so annoying with so many of the other things that he did the birthday thing was painful I mean just don't (laughs) celebrate first of all who celebrates their birthday on the the actual day like it's during the week you might do that but really what you're going to do is something on the weekend right Right. or you try and when it didn't work out then be like all right we'll do it another night right I I know by the way funny story this actually something insanely similar happened to me when I was dating Ian he was living in LA obviously working for this agent I was in New York I'd flown there for the weekend to celebrate my birthday Uh, obviously I flew there quite a lot for many weekends but this particular one was my birthday and he spent on my birthday was on a Sunday and he spent hours on the phone with his boss trying to charter a private jet when there were none I don't know if it was a hurricane but I think it was yeah it was very similar and yeah yeah it was not great but I did not I was like this is what he's doing and that was the thing for me and my husband at the time we were both just out of law school we were both crushing ourselves to try to get ahead and so I understood that and the fact that he doesn't get that seem to get that at all is What's frustrating, because although I did not love my husband on the phone, my now husband, on the phone for hours trying to charter, like, it was ridiculous. I'm like, what do you even have to do? And why are you doing this on a Sunday? But that was just the job. And I, I, I could I'm respect totally that. with you, but I can't tell you how many people, friends of mine or work colleagues who tell me that their spouse complains about how much they have to work. I, yeah. I have zero tolerance for that like like it's usually to be honest it's usually my male colleagues my Mm -hmm. male partners who are like yeah my wife wants to go my wife complains because I have to work I'm on a call with I'm like like what what does she want you to do or but but oh my god okay that's really funny that you say that because I do have no tolerance for it now we are we are older we are not you know well, the the young scrappy ones. I do. I give my husband yeah, but, shit all uh, the time. I, and client, by the way, we know. also have a family. So yeah, you but have to in spend client time. services, you know, yeah. if you're if you're in a law firm, you have yes. a client. If they want to have a phone call, I cannot tell them that. Sorry, yes. I have this or that or yeah. my like. 
And sometimes that requires some other call before it. Yeah. Before we get on with it. Like, you're absolutely right, depending on your job. But yeah, but I also, do, yeah. but Kate, you're, I know you, and you're also, like, you're showing up at your kids' field trips and shit. Like, I don't uh, even, yes. I wouldn't even do that, even though I have a much more flexible schedule. I wouldn't right. do that. But, but, so you know the times when you can show up yes. and when you can't show up yes. and and yes there are always unavoidable things but there are people who don't and i'm guessing yeah, these male those, colleagues don't yeah. show up at and field so, trips and, and so therefore they're they've already that's their mo yeah like so and that's the frustration and that's the wife's frustration this is 2020 like you don't we don't do that anymore you fucking show up for your family you don't just sit at work for hours and hours like it's just not I, I'm with them on think on that because she, she actually uh, Aileen McKenna said that she did write Nate's character more as like what was traditionally the girlfriend part you yeah, know like yeah. a little naggy yeah. like why aren't you home more yes, you know and yes. that she wanted to give like a man that yeah. kind of role which I thought was it was great yeah I do and I think that was effective and another one was her f- friend Doug played by Richard yeah. Summer, uh-huh. who is, goes on to be Harry in Mad Men, probably most mot- notably. But he knows about fashion and is a research analyst. Yeah, that uh, is awesome. Yes, and his constant comments. So I love that she had him because he was not a character in the book. It was totally made up by Aline. And the fact that Doug's storyline is not wrapped up that we know nothing about him and he's like not even in the last hour is appalling to me because I really, and if we had done crystal ball on this episode, which we're not doing, mine would have been entirely about him. I'm dying to know what happens to him. He was so interesting and layered. So right. And complicated. And in the book, the friends are a really big part of Andy coming back around to herself. And that's not the case in this. And I think it's the right choice for the movie. But it is a little sad to me that they just kind of hang out there. They're really just to reflect back a certain period of her uh, attitude. Yeah, but people also, she said, McKenna said, they get so mad about these friends, too, like that they weren't supportive. And she's just like, well, it's similar to Nate, you know? Yeah. They're just kind of like, this isn't what you wanted. And But people are like, oh, but they'll take her free handbags. It's like, well, sure, yeah, why not? But that still doesn't, they can still give you shit. They're your friends. Yeah. And she, when her friend, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm just so glad that you are the brave one of the two of us that will read this much shit on the internet. Maybe I've written too much on the internet <laughs> I that am. I cannot, I cannot, I don't, don't dare, don't dare go for those troll shit. But well, I love it because it brings a good point. Yeah. But it's, it. these were in interviews with Aline, who okay. this is what she's saying. Oh, so people she always ask her trolling about. her. Okay, trolling her or asking her like the friends, and and her point is, listen, I mean, sure, they take the free shit, and then they can still like her one friend can still call her out when she's in the gallery, basically about to hook up with Christian, who's not her boyfriend. Okay, okay, so what she said, we've already now named Aline mm-hmm. McKenna a number of times. And that is who we are choosing to focus on for this, what she said. Uh, I'm going to start with her astrological sign. And do you know it? Yes, I don't. What? I wait for you to tell me. It's kind of like a fun surprise for me. Yes. No, I I like that. I like that. Okay. She's a Leo. Oh, of course she is. But what I loved about it was that the author of the book is an Aries. 
So it was this Leo oh, Aries, wow. right? Tag team. Wow. It, it was the Aries Me story. Yes, that the Leo made it her own. So I kind of yes. loved that little tag team duo. So for those of you who don't know, because I did not know as much about Aline as I do now. Aline McKenna is a writer, producer, and director famous for producing movies like I Don't Know How She Does It and writing uh, rom-coms such as 27 Dresses starring Katherine Heigl at the height of her career. And there's a few others you might know. Most recently, four seasons and 62 episodes of television for My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And like so many people in... Hollywood or so many writers, Aline worked incessantly and walked a long road before getting her big break with The Devil Wears Prada. She started in college directing five plays and was a staff writer on the Harvard Crimson. Yes, she went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, and She's then, wicked smart. That's right. And then uh, her college roommate, after they graduated, said, let's write a book together. And so they did. And they got it published. And then I did she, not know that. Yes, and then but she did not become some big author. So she went on to write movies and TV pilots. And she was getting she was always working. She was getting paid, but she wasn't getting anything made, which is kind of what you want. It's the same thing with a writer who's writing books that is writing them but isn't getting them published. She was getting, you know, she was writing screenplays and pilots that would get optioned, but and so she would get money. But she, they would never get made. And that's really what yeah. you want. You want to see the final product. You want people to... She referred to herself then as a document producer. Yes. Right? Like she, yes. Just, she produced a lot of documents. Yes, she but she didn't actually get to see anything come to the screen. And then, she, of course, Devil Wears Prada became her calling card. I was very interested in sort of what happened after mm. Devil Wears Prada. And, and, you know, you read a lot or hear a lot in Hollywood about someone having this big breakout thing whether it be as an actress or writer and like there's sort of the hangover of okay now what and you think that this means that all these doors are going to open for you and everything's going to be amazing and of course it's just not really like that and Mm -hmm. she said that at the premiere of Devil Wears Prada people were really really very complimentary about the script you know and she kept going oh yeah but it was Meryl it was this and people were like no like your script was amazing and that she was talking to David Frankel the director about it and he was like you know you really like she was like this is it like I've cracked a code like right. I know how to I know how to do it now and right. he was like in the nicest possible way like seriously I mean like this is an anomaly right like, this is lightning <laughs> in a right bottle. like this yes. is lightning in a bottle like yes. you don't know don't how ever hard expect it is. to come back yes. to this yes and she said and he was right because then the next thing she did as you mentioned was 27 dresses with Katherine Heigl which I mean she didn't come right out and say this but like she clearly does not like that movie yeah <laughs> she she I mean, did come out yeah. and say it on the one yeah. on something I yeah. listened to. Basically. But it was a commercial success. It was not yes. Devil Wears Prada. There's never going to be another Devil Wears Prada, but it was a commercial success. And that she since then has never written a conventional rom-com or movie where people ended up together. And that's just not what she wanted to do in 27 Dresses. And she finally just gave in and she realized, well, this is, this is what has to happen. But after that, she's, this is the, part I liked that she went 
and decided that she wanted to kind of be the one in charge. She wanted to try directing, but that most of the people she knew that had made the leap from writing to directing were men. And she wanted to meet a woman who had done it and had done it successfully. So she called or emailed her agent and said, I want to meet Nora Ephron. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, yeah. And she said, and I actually got a meeting and she said, and I was like in with Nora Ephron and I said, you know, I just want to direct, but how do you make sure, you know, people listen to you as a woman? How do you put it all together and going all these things? And Nora just looked at her and was like, wow, you're really whining about this. Yeah, I loved that story. She said, if you want to do it, just do it. Yes. That's what the guys do. Yeah. And she said it was just all tough love. Mm-hmm. She didn't concede an inch. And she was yeah. just like, like, like. Just do it. Yeah. Which I was like, oh, man. And and that was it for her. And then, yeah. you know. I loved I that. that. I did, too. I loved that story. And it was also sort of appropriate. Maybe that's how she wrote Andy. Like, yeah. she understood that. That... And having it kind of come back to her with Nora mm-hmm. Ephron as the Stanley Tucci character, I just thought yeah, that was so. Exactly. It was a good story on its own, and then in the context of having written uh, *Devil Wears Prada* and that scene, I thought it was even better. It was like very art imitating life. Like, what is going on? Yeah, my the thing I loved when I heard her say was <laughs> something she has built her career on since *Devil Wears Prada*. She said that she loved writing. And like you said, she's not written any rom-coms and and people don't end up together because she was wanting to really dismantle these tropes instead of Mm -hmm. reinforcing them. And that's how she didn't work with 27 Dress as well. But that and that was something she could bring to Meryl. And that was the first time she realized because before that she had been writing a lot of these rom-com type things and it wasn't she wasn't connecting with the material the same way. And when she could write Meryl who was, she had carte blanche to be this villain, but also making her more complicated than just this satire, you know, cardboard, mean, bad guy. And she loved doing that. And she said that when she broke into the industry, you couldn't do a female anti-hero. So she was Mm -hmm. always struggling to, with the license to, she says, give women the same amount of flaws, blind spots, and insecurities as men have. And she said the final frontier for women is to get to be an asshole. An asshole. That's my yes, other quote. You got it. I'm like, yes. I'm like, that's my other quote. I yes. love that. Me too. Well, and I wonder and that, how she feels about Fleabag. Or well, so, so many... that's exactly what I have written here. So yeah. I, that's why I asked, have you seen Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Because no. She, I know. I do know. She, I think she that character would qualify. But they are... Put, it, it is farcical they do put put, put it in there's in, song and dance yes it. yeah but yeah. no but it's farcical in that like she's always pretending to be like the sexy girl but meanwhile she's like pissed off and really underneath so yes. she isn't really the asshole in the same way as you can argue Fleabag, Fleabag she does yeah. say she can make any hideous behavior a delight and I wonder how that plays out in that show but yes yeah I, yeah. I that that's his, I have this exact quote too and it was in the context of her talking about crazy ex-girlfriend so I was like I wonder you're right like how far 
does this woman go, right? Like yeah. down the last frontier of being an mm-hmm. asshole because Fleabag goes real far. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I Hope. was wondering the exact same thing. Yeah. I love to well, hear it. Well, she's just signed a $20 million. Yeah. Is that yeah. what it was? With ABC was... Studios first look deal. So my takeaway was I, I haven't formulated how I feel about it, but all of this discussion made me think about the idea of success, right? As writers, we want our work to matter, but what that really means is not particularly clear, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that her career, Aileen's career, is a good example of the spectrum of it, right? The process, how you work with executives, and then critics and audiences. So Devil Wears Prada, we already know, lightning in a bottle. She connected with the materials. The executives loved her and what she was doing. And then the critics and the audiences loved it. It was a win-win-win on every side. 27 Dresses was a commercial success. But yet, Aline does not consider it to be a win because she didn't connect with the material. She fought the executives and then eventually gave in right and then critics hated it and then you have crazy ex-girlfriend which almost no one saw but she considers a success because she's proud she's proud of the work that she did she said it was creatively satisfying and she said it had a cultural impact with a small but rabid following and a studio that was supportive enough to let them do the whole thing they had always envisioned it as four seasons and they let them go through all four seasons and execute it exactly what they kind of pitched from the beginning which is pretty fascinating and does not happen I mean low ratings they would have been cut after season one yeah but they had the support so it just made me think like where which of those is her success now obviously Devil Wears Prada like you almost have to take that out of the equation but yeah is the crazy ex-girlfriend the bigger success or is 21, 27 dresses the bigger success? It's not so easy Ooh. to quantify or delineate, right? No, I don't know. But I think I would go with the crazy ex-girlfriend because of something else she said mm. on this podcast that I yeah. think you listened to, yeah. which is that when she was writing screenplays for movies like Devil Wears Prada or 27 Dresses she worked or any of those like she worked like five six hours a day or whatever and when she did the four seasons of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend she probably worked 12 to 14 hours a day she saw her family less she saw her husband less but her husband said to her that when she was making Crazy Ex-Girlfriend even though we see you less and obviously we'd love to see you more (laughs) we've never seen you so happy yeah, and it's bringing you such joy that that brings us such joy. And like, I feel like she talks so much about working with Rachel Bloom and mm-hmm. her that being her soulmate. Yes. Even though she doesn't believe in soulmates yes. for in the romantic sense, yeah. a creative soulmate. Yes. I just feel like that experience sounds like it fed her soul so yes. much. And it and I doubt she's hurting for money. So if you can kind of take out like the need. to for commercial success obviously the good part is you probably make money but it just seems like on a day-to-day basis that that brought her just such joy yes no I I completely agree that I don't think she has a hard time delineating I know that she would say that but I was but I'm thinking of it just outside of that even like what would I think would you think something would a would a piece of work nourish your soul 
if you creatively connected with it and then no one saw it or read it would that be enough for you I don't know well no probably not <laughs> but I think I'm a, I know but but that's sort of um I have a little bit of uh I don't know if competitive is the right word but I would I probably would would want the more of the accolade well she gets accolades for it so I don't know um, I know it is it's hard it's, it is true. hard to I don't she know she says it has a cultural impact and there are these shows and books things that just you're right have that sort of rabid little following that never really caught on right and they're so much better than some other things that do I think it's a great discussion and I really am always intrigued by it the redefining success and and that it shouldn't just Mm -hmm. be what you know what old white capitalist men view as success but it's hard to shake it but also it's hard to say and every time I feel it and then I try to express it it sounds like a bunch of baloney it sounds like a bunch of bullshit like settling like oh this is this was a success for me and I'm like but really was it it's just something I I wrestle with like what is the goal right when you take yourself off that like well-worn path it's just harder to get your bearings and I guess that's yeah 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 oh I get it so what's your takeaway so mine is not a lot I I we kind of talked about it earlier but I was as like you really taken by Merrill's inspiration of Clint Eastwood this idea of never raising his voice and and sort of leading quietly Mm. and it it was to me it's just something I think about a lot because interesting I do actually because okay as a as a partner in a law firm there's aren't we're still only maybe 20% of the partnership is female. And so I am still in the minority. And there are lots of, you know, meetings and and presentations and things where I do think a lot about how as the female voice, you know, you're being received. Mm. And I mean, my natural tendency is, Mm. is, Loud, yes. loud. I mean, I'm not. Yes. I, that's just the way I am. So yes. I'm not putting on a show right. that just right. and an animated, and I use my hands and yes. all of that. So that's how I am. I, I obviously I can temper my behavior yeah. in, in, in court versus in a meeting, but like sure. at my core, I would. I am not Clint Eastwood, right? Or no. or Miranda. So I'm fascinated by about how that could work. To your advantage yeah. and whether that would project more confidence or authority i do think men think less about the way they present themselves no doubt yeah and i think that when women because i've been told this i know this when I, when i get mad mm-hmm. and when i get pissed and yell then i have been called hysterical do not you do not say that to me yes. i will literally dress yes. someone down yes. i don't care yes. who they are yes for calling me that i yes. just don't like that at all yeah but I do think that there's something to this idea of maintaining even if it's not as quiet as she is Mm. but that may be employing a little more of this measured tone yeah would have an effect on on people um in a different way and I was just it really 
made me think about it. That's and, and that's interesting. Know? Yeah, that's interesting. So I could never really be the Clint Eastwood type, and that's where I I was going with it when you first started talking. But then when you as you kept talking. I think I had a little bit of that style when I was in-house, but it wasn't quite the same. It was more that I just didn't say. I didn't get involved a lot. We had outside counsel negotiating a lot of our stuff, and I would, when they came to me with issues, I would just deal with them very quickly and easily and efficiently. I never kind of got upset. But when I got upset, I got crazy, like screaming Standing up, I would stand up all the time. I was like standing up like anyone uh, on conference calls, like anyone could see me. And I I cursed like a yeah. goddamn whatever. Yeah. But I never got, I, I only got respect for that. Um, and right. that might have been the world because. Yeah, that, it's a little it, bit of your world. I, I, think. I would agree, definitely. But I also wonder if part of it was that I was n- like, 80% of the time I was very mild and yeah. very not quiet not in the same way that we were talking about but I was very even and then when you I blew up I when I blew up I was like this is you've got to be fucking kidding me right um, right but yeah that's interesting and I wonder if that had any thing to do with it but you're right I do think it was much more of my that was much more acceptable in the worlds I was I was operating in Right. I I think that's true. For and men and women, though, because the women were that way, too. I mean, yeah, the last three women I worked with who I f- will love forever were all and funny. We all kind of have low toned voices. Curse like you say. curse like we you would not believe. Too. Yes. And mm-hmm. they they were very high up. I was not as high up as I'm. They were very high up and very respected and never ever considered hysterical or um you know and and to your point none of us were ever putting on a show that was who we are again back to the brit marling thing like living in that masculine sense of myself and that was very comfortable for me um and very comfortable for them so I, i do think the authenticity is probably a big piece of it too because if you're pretending forget it Mm -hmm. yeah well and that's what what was going to be my ultimate conclusion is like as nice as this sounds and I think it's interesting (laughs) to consider yeah you just have to be yourself don't you and and I'm just not going to be that it's like a fantasy though so that's that was my my takeaway was that in a fantasy world I could try the Clint yes. Eastwood Miranda lean in Priestley. to hear me yes yes you should listen intently to yes. what I'm saying and the, the I should be the calm in the storm yes you know? I should make everyone else crazy yeah I like it like yes fuzzy bees around me yes <laughs> and then and then I will end it with that's all that's all that's all that's in the book by the way yeah also in the book she said after she says fuck you to Miranda someone suggests that Andy go put her resume in with Anna Wintour because they're enemies she actually names Anna Wintour in a different capacity obviously yeah oh boy good stuff anything else um no I think that's it there's the devil wears Prada yeah that's all this has been pop fiction women with Corinne and Kate If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. 
And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.